Well, this morning we continue to have something a little different in store. Instead of our regularly scheduled Bible exposition through the book of Matthew, we're going to be tackling some more of your questions in another Q&A sermon. Why do we do these Q&A sermons? One reason is because we, we believe truth matters. God's looking for true worshipers, Jesus said in John 4, those who worship in spirit and truth. And we often focus on the spirit part, worshiping God from the heart, and rightly so. But the truth part matters just as much. God must be worshipped according to truth, which tells us who he is, what he has done. This is why preaching must include instruction. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now, of course, there has to be balance. All instruction and no exhortation leaves people puffed up with head knowledge And then all exhortation, no instruction, leaves people with a a weak, emotion-driven faith. No, preaching must reach both the head and the heart, and we seek to do both. But that said, every now and then, I like to include a little extra teaching from the pulpit to help the church clear these roadblocks to understanding. And that's what's behind these Q&A messages. People often have very serious questions of Scripture, And it's very important that these questions get answered because, once again, truth matters. You need to understand God rightly to worship him rightly. I hope that means you are diligently searching and studying the scriptures on on your own to answer all of your questions to, to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. But every now and then, I like to step in and try and help clear these understanding roadblocks in your mind. And the goal here is simply to help you be filled with the knowledge of God's will that you may walk in a manner pleasing to him. So with that in mind, many of you have submitted your questions, and we're going to continue to try and answer them together for the benefit of uh, all who are here. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago that in the end, we ended up with almost 40 questions. We can't quite get to them all, but I've selected another batch of prominent questions, which I think will be of benefit to the whole congregation. And so with that in mind, we're going to get started and jump back into a few more of these Q&A questions. So the first one for this morning, question number one, what do we know biblically about dreams? Should we be dismissive to any supernatural purpose to our dreams? Are dreams useful to the Christian in any way today? Basically, what, what does the Bible say about dreams? This person said their question was, was generated from our recent time in Matthew chapter one and two. And there we saw how God used dreams to communicate his will about the Messiah five times in the span of just two chapters. And that this prompts a question, and maybe you've wondered this yourself, like, does God still do that today? Is he still talking to people via dreams? Should we be looking for supernatural meaning in our dreams? Do they mean anything? Again, in general, what does the Bible say about dreams? Ancient civilizations often believed that dreams were the revelations of the gods. The Babylonians and Egyptians, for example, put a lot of stock into dreams. They employed a full-time class of dream interpreters. And oftentimes uh, the king would go spend the night at a pagan temple or a holy site in the hopes of having a divine dream. The Hebrews, in contrast, were actually largely unconcerned with dreams. Job speaks of the fleeting nature of dreams. Isaiah 29, 7 and 8 speaks of the the transitory and even deceiving nature of dreams. Not every dream was thought to be significant or from God. Yes, there are a few outstanding revelatory dreams in the Bible. But you think about the 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, it's rather few and far between. Just a handful of examples. Even still, the Bible does talk about some revelatory dreams. that They're in the Bible, so a solid starting place is just to study and put together the testimony of these revelatory dreams in the Bible and see what we can learn. Can we make any conclusions? So let's start by doing that. There are 22 revelatory dreams in the Bible. They're given to 14 different people. Some of these dreams were given to Israelites. Some were given to pagans, like Pharaoh. And Nebuchadnezzar. But like I said, these dreams were few and far between. Most took place in the time of the patriarchs. And in in the thousand years between Joseph and Daniel, only two other dreams 
were recorded. And so it seems like God reserved these dreams for big moments in redemptive history. But we can make a few observations from all the dreams that were recorded in Scripture. They all were revelatory, meaning God was using them to reveal something. But there's two different types. There are sometimes symbolic dreams where the dreamer has basically a night vision. They see this, this, these images, these symbols, these pictures. It doesn't mean anything, but it has a meaning. And to discern the message, the dream must be interpreted. And we only find, though, two men who are actually given the ability to interpret these divine dreams. In the Bible, at least, that's Joseph and Daniel. Both of them fully attribute their ability to God. Genesis 40, verse 8, Joseph says, Do not interpretations belong to God. Daniel 2.28, Daniel says, There is God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So some dreams are of the symbolic type. Other dreams are just message dreams. This is where instead of seeing, the dreamer really hears a message from God in a dream. This comes as a direct message and no interpreter is needed. Now, all four dreams Joseph received in the New Testament were of this type. When Joseph awoke, he knew without a doubt he had received a message from God. And so he did not seek an interpretation. He simply obeyed. God just spoke to me. I have to obey. And that's true of all divine dreams, whether they're symbolic or message. The dreamer has no doubt he received a message from God. And the dreamer always awoke with a vivid and full recollection of the dream. And that's already in contrast to all of our dreams today. Even if you have a vivid dream in the moment when you wake up, you have at best a fleeting impression of what you just experienced. But these revelatory dreams seem to have an intensity and recollection that matched reality. It's like they woke up as if this thing really just happened and they remember all of it. In all, revelatory dreams are extremely rare in biblical history, but that should make sense because God's special revelation is extremely rare. And that's what these dreams are. They're a form of special revelation. Revelation, that, that's the term referring to how God reveals himself to the world. And there's general revelation, which is God's revelation in creation, what we can learn of God by observing creation. But that is very limited. We can only know so much of who God is from looking at creation. To know him more, he has to do more to reveal himself. And that's special revelation, a more direct and definite form of the knowledge of God. Special revelation includes God's direct acts, like showing up to Moses in a burning bush. Special revelation includes prophets. God would use men as mouthpieces to speak for him. Special revelation includes Jesus, who came as incarnate revelation. It includes the scriptures, God's written and lasting form of special revelation. Then it also includes these, these dreams and visions. There are forms of God revealing himself more directly to man. And the biblical record supports the fact that God relied on these, these earlier forms, prophets, dreams, and visions to reveal himself in the eras before his completed word. Now, speaking of prophets, the Old Testament itself connected dreams with the prophetic gift. Here's one key Old Testament verse on all this. It's Numbers verse, or chapter 12, verse 6. God says to the people, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. The context here is forming a contrast with Moses, actually, who was the greatest prophet. God would speak to him face to face. Other prophets, God would speak to them in a dream or vision. But clearly, you can see the close connection between dreams and the office of prophet. The prophet spoke for God and announced his message. Where did the prophet get his message though? Most, most often prophecy came as a form of direct address, but sometimes the prophet would receive his message from God through a dream or vision. You think about though, that kind of seems like a pretty easy thing to fake though, right? Like, all right, listen to me. God gave me a dream last night. And in the dream, he told me he wants all of you to give to me all of your money. <laughs> like, well, how do we know you, you really had a dream and how do we know it, it really came from God? 
You see, since we're dealing with a revelatory gift, dreamers were lumped together with prophets when it came to the tests of authentication. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5, gives one of those tests. It's talking about the prophet or the dreamer of dreams, it says. They're lumped together. They're not really differentiated. And there you have the orthodoxy test, where God says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams performs a sign, and it comes true, but then he tells you to go after other gods, God says, don't listen to him. He's not a true prophet. The true prophet would never contradict God's given word. And the penalty was death for that prophet or dreamer of dreams. Same goes for Deuteronomy 18, which is the fulfillment test. If the thing about which the prophet speaks does not come true, it didn't come from the Lord. The prediction of the near future was the authenticating sign of the prophet or dreamer. That's why you should listen to them. But if that's proven wrong, well, they're a phony. Don't listen to them. Again, it was death penalty. And that's how seriously God takes it for those who claim to speak for him or hear from him when they don't. It's no small offense to put your words into God's mouth. And such false prophets were a huge problem in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah was the lonely prophet, and he kept warning the people against all these false prophets and dreamers. They claimed that God was speaking to them in dreams. And they were lulling the people into a false sense of security to, to worship other gods, saying Babylonians won't invade, they won't conquer, so forth. But Jeremiah says, don't listen to them. They're, they're speaking visions of their own imagination. Their dreams are not from the Lord. Jeremiah 23, 25, God testifies. He says, I've heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. He goes on to say how they intend to make the people forget God's name through their dreams. And then God goes on in verse 32. He says, behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit. I think when you put together these Old Testament and some New Testament principles for discerning between the true and the false prophet, you have ample direction for today. You know, in all, you look at dreams in Scripture and everything is said. Literally nothing suggests we should be looking for supernatural interpretations to our dreams today. God has spoken in dreams to a handful of people a handful of times in all of redemptive history. So I seriously doubt God is communicating to you specially in a dream about what you should have for lunch tomorrow. Beware trivializing God's revelation. Is it possible God could still communicate in a dream today? Well, of course it's possible. How can we limit God? He's free to do as he sees fit. But is it probable? Your answer to that will largely be tied to your view of the prophetic gift did the, the gift of prophecy cease after the age of the apostles, or, or is it back today? And some claim that they get a dream from God every night. He's speaking to them all the time. At the very least, we would hold such people to the same tests of authenticity, orthodoxy, fulfillment. If even one of their messages does not fully accord with what God has already said, or if even one of their messages does not come true fully, well, we no longer employ the death penalty, but we would completely write them off as a false prophet. Entirely. Everything they've said is disqualified. Be discerning. God has given us his complete revelation in the scriptures. I do not believe he's continuing to give special revelation today. His word is sufficient. And be very careful in believing someone just because they said, God told me this in a dream. And in general, I don't put a lot of stock into dreams. Most dreams, I think, come from the flesh and not God. I mean, how often do you sin in your dreams? And here's a question my old college students asked me. It wasn't asked, so I won't answer it. But, you know, if you sin in your dreams, do you have to repent? I'll let you think about that. But do you think such dreams are, are coming from God? 
No, we're called to renew our minds to fill them with, with, with that which is profitable. And these, these random subjective dreams don't fit that description. Your dreams are not worth dwelling on, contrary to Sigmund Freud. If you want a word from the Lord, he's already given you his full revelation. You have his scriptures. You have the indwelling spirit, which means you don't need a revelatory dream. God is free to do as he sees fit. But as for you, just focus on taking him at his word where he tells you to seek him in his word. Now, it just so happens someone else asked uh, an interesting related question. So let's piggyback right here with question number two. I think this will help you actually. Question two, does God lead his people by prompting them through the spirit? Should Christians be able to sense God's leading? Does the spirit plant thoughts in the mind? Does God lead his people by, by promptings of the spirit? This person clarified in their question that they don't believe God speaks to us in the sense of giving new revelation, like we should be adding to scripture, but does God speak to his people or lead them in any way internally, subjectively? Is he still communicating with us directly? Now, here's the thing. The claim to hear from God or speak for God is a huge claim. You're saying God, the creator, has spoken to you. God, the creator, he has supreme authority, being the creator, to tell us humans what to do and how to live. That means if if you're hearing from that God or speaking for him, you now have the authority to tell us what to do or how to live. That's a huge deal. And that's why, as we saw with the dreams question, verification is a huge deal. God carefully warned his people to judge between true and false prophets because he takes extremely seriously people who claim to hear from him or speak for him when, when they didn't. And no matter how people try and dance around this issue, claiming to hear from God is still a claim to divine special revelation. Even if it's through a feeling or a prompting, you're still claiming that the God of the universe has chosen to reveal his hidden secret will just to you directly. That claim of revelation is going to come down to the same issues of authentication and verification. Imagine someone saying, I really just feel like the spirit is leading me to marry this person. That, that's still a claim to divine revelation. Why should I believe you truly received a message from God telling you to marry that person? Or why should you believe that feeling, that thought really came from the spirit? How do you know? Even if it's just a thought, a feeling, a prompting, how does anyone know it came from God? You have a huge verification issue here. And, and all the claims people make like this are entirely unverifiable. They are 100% subjective. Let I me mean, just ask yourself, that, that spiritual thought you just had, maybe it's a good thought, but how do you really know it came from the Holy Spirit, not just your mind? Can you prove that or verify that? And for that matter, how do you know if it came from the Holy Spirit or, or an evil spirit? How do you even tell the difference? Some might say, well, we know these thoughts come from the Spirit because they accord with Scripture. Okay, good. But then why do I need your thoughts or promptings if if they're just repeating Scripture? It sounds like I just need Scripture. This question of verification is not new from Old Testament Israel to New Testament church. There have been countless people who have claimed they have heard from God or they speak for God. And the reality is we are warned over and over again that false prophets will come. So we're we're back to that same issue with dreams. How are we to believe anyone's claims? Why should we believe any person claiming they heard from God? A dream, a vision, a feeling, an inclination comes down to authentication. We looked at the two tests of authentication, but also comes by verification. And the main verification given in scripture of hearing from God is what? Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are the main indication. They were given by God to men as the proof positive that they really did hear a message from God. Second Corinthians, for example, the apostle Paul is defending his own apostleship. The Corinthians were known to just believe anybody who claimed to be an apostle. 
And so Paul is setting the record straight, claiming he is a true apostle. They are not. How does Paul defend such a claim? Seems subjective. How does Paul distinguish his own apostleship as being true? Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. He tells them, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4 says the same thing. Same thing. Speaking of salvation, it says, after it was first spoken to the, through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. The apostles, they confirmed the gospel. Verse 4 says, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. You claim God spoke to you. Why should we believe you? Moses, you claim the God of our fathers appeared to you in a burning bush and told you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Who are you? Why should we believe you? Well, like God said to Pharaoh, or rather to Moses, when Moses asked that question, like, why would they believe me? God said, take your staff, throw it to the ground. It will turn into a snake. That's why they should believe you. Exodus chapter four, verse five. He gave them the power to wield a sign as a proof, not a parlor trick. It was meant to be a proof that, no, I really do come from God. God has sent me. Now you should listen to what I have to say. But no one today is working the true signs and wonders of the apostles and prophets. Show me the prophet who predicts the future and it always comes true. Not one out of 10 times, but 10 out of 10 times, every time with full accuracy and consistency. Show me that person. Show me the apostle who is truly healing the blind and regrowing limbs. Do you bear the signs of an apostle? If not, why should I believe you are hearing from God or speaking from God? Whether it's by a dream, a vision, a feeling, an inclination, a thought. In reality, I think most people making such claims today offer conclusive proof that they are not hearing from God. Namely, because the the thoughts or promptings they get definitely did not come from the Holy Spirit. That's because they're either mixed with error or they lead them to do wrong. Like, I just feel the Spirit is leading me to marry this unbeliever. I can tell you that prompting definitely did not come from the Holy Spirit. I mean, truly, how often do you have yourself thoughts or feelings that turn out to be wrong? So how are you discerning between all all of the good Spirit-inspired thoughts and all of the bad fleshly thoughts. Again, if your answer is scripture, good, but you're, you're kind of proving the point. It sounds like we just need to be guided by scripture. These days, Christians face a lot of pressure from Christian influencers who have themselves been influenced by the charismatic movement. These people testify that they hear from God all the time. God is always speaking to them. He's every day. God tells them something new. God tells them this, tells them that. They hear the still small voice. The spirit leads them with promptings and intuitions. And they're 100% convinced this is all coming from God. And so they, they appear very spiritual. They appear very in tune with God. You meanwhile think to yourself like, I don't hear anything. I'm not hearing these signals from God. I'm not getting voicemails from the Lord. I'm not getting these thoughts or promptings. What's wrong with me? You're so, in comparison, unspiritual. You might even wonder, like, do you even have the spirit? But do not be deceived. This practice of trying to empty the mind to hear from God is more akin to pagan divination with New Age terms than how the Bible tells us God will communicate to us or lead us. The Bible never paints a picture that that God's plan to lead his church was through scripture plus personal daily revelations. Now, he gave his church his finished sufficient word in the scriptures. It contains, he says, everything God's people need to know for life and godliness, for guidance, for decision making. You don't need to empty your mind to hear from God. You need to fill it and renew it with his more sure word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Second Peter 1, 3, seeing that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. I know people are, are so desperate for an experience or an encounter with God today. But some have misconstrued the ministry of the Holy Spirit to validate their whims, their desires. But instead, you should come just to appreciate the Spirit's true work and true power. I know others might claim people like us are the ones devoid of the Spirit's power because we're not getting personal daily revelations, hearing from him every single day. But no, you're, you're never more in tune with the Spirit than when you are filling your mind with the scriptures he inspired. And if you want to talk about the legitimate work and power of the Spirit, don't overlook inspiration and illumination. Don't forget, it was the Spirit who inspired the scriptures. If you want to hear from God, he's already spoken. If you want guidance, he says he's already given you everything you need. It's now in his written word. You are not entitled to fresh new revelation every day or any day. You're not entitled to God's hidden will for your future. That's why it's called hidden. But every time a believer lets the word of Christ richly dwell within them, Colossians 3.16, they are walking by the spirit. Every time a believer is transformed by the renewing of their mind, Romans 12.2, it says they prove what the will of God is. Yes, there is an ongoing sense to the Spirit's work and power in our lives. It's called illumination. God is no longer giving new revelation to the church. That revelation finished when the last apostle wrote the last verse of Scripture. But the Spirit is still working daily, speaking to us and guiding guiding us. Yet his voice today is never divorced from the Scriptures. I'll say that again. The spirit is still working daily, speaking to us and guiding us, but his voice is never divorced from the scriptures. And so absolutely, we still believe the spirit speaks to us, leads us, guides us, directs us, but he always does so in accordance with the word he inspired as he illumines it in our minds. And therefore, you don't need to pray that God would just whisper to you or tell you what to do or speak to you, or give you a feeling. You don't need to do that. You're not told to do that. All you need to do is what the author of Psalm 119 did. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, and it's entirely about extolling the power and sufficiency of God's word. And the psalmist never cries out, God, just just tell me more. Tell me something new. Tell me what to do. Reveal yourself to me. No, he just continually cries out to God to to simply help him understand and then apply what God has already said. Psalm 119 verse 18, for example, he prays, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Verse 34, Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. That's all he needs. That's all you need. And the Spirit will answer that prayer. I think we'll leave it there for the sake of time. But this was an issue that's come up before. I've preached uh, many a sermon on it. But if you want to learn even more, if that issue struck a chord with you and you want to dive deeper, a full-length sermon from James chapter 4, verse 15, and we did on it, titled, How to Find God's Will. You can find that on our website, James 4.15, How to Find God's Will. For now, let's move on to question three. We will switch gears. It's hard to make these Q&A sermons flow. I mean, they're just all over the place, but we will switch gears now. Question three. It says, in some presentations of election and God's calling, there seems to be a strong emphasis on God's sovereignty and salvation and little emphasis on man's responsibility and salvation. What is the appropriate balance between the two? The balance between sovereignty and responsibility and salvation. First off, I would say I completely agree. All too many presentations of the doctrines of grace, probably because they're trying so hard to refute Arminian theology, 
They tend to overemphasize God's sovereignty and salvation and basically neglect man's responsibility in salvation. And some go so far as to refuse to call sinners to believe. I can't tell you to believe because I don't know if you're elect. I'm just going to preach the gospel, wait for God to regenerate you. Then I'll tell you to believe. That goes too far. That goes into something that's called hyper-Calvinism. We're not going to dive deep here because I think I've covered these issues extensively before. But suffice it to say, Scripture upholds both side by side God's sovereignty in salvation and man's responsibility in salvation. The Lord Jesus taught them both in the same breath. He taught them both. John 6, for example, as he's teaching the crowd, he says, John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Anyone who believes will have eternal life. But equally, he says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father himself draws him. God's sovereignty is primary in the sense that God must act first before any can be saved. Indeed, God's actions go back to eternity past. Ours do not. And that's why God gets all the glory. Man is unable to come to God or choose God on his own. God must do his part first. Yes. But this still doesn't undercut man's responsibility to do his part, which is simply to believe. Scripture often speaks to us in our human perspective. And there we're told that God will hold us accountable for all of our choices and actions. Even if our choices and actions are bound in sin, we are still responsible for them. And that includes the choice from a human's perspective to believe in Jesus. No matter your understanding on these issues, you do well, well, you do best to just maintain the tension that's found in Scripture itself to allow a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation to sit right next to the high view of man's responsibility in salvation. For a little perspective, the great preacher Spurgeon dealt with this issue extensively early on. He was in his young 20s as a new pastor. The first issue he faced was dealing with hyper-Calvinists. Hyper-Calvinism was growing in England at the time. And these guys believe that just, just to, to call all people without exception to repent and believe was appalling. I mean, Jesus, they say, is only the savior of the elect, the elect can't believe in him. Therefore, only after a person gives evidence of regeneration do you have the warrant to now tell them to believe. But this teaching disfigures both Calvinism and scripture. You have to understand that although it's true, unbelievers do not have the ability to respond to the gospel and believe. God most often issues his effectual call in conjunction with the general gospel call. Meaning as we preach the gospel to all people, we trust God to do his sovereign part and call men to life. Spurgeon himself responded to such teaching saying, quote, of their, of their teaching, he says, this also is false. It takes away a gospel for sinners and offers us a gospel for saints. Brethren, the command to believe in Christ must be the sinner's warrant if you consider the nature of our commission. How runs it? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It ought to read, according to the hyper-Calvinists, preach the gospel to every regenerate person, to every convinced sinner, to every sensible sinner. But it is not so. It is to every creature, end quote. And indeed, it seems like some Calvinists are more interested in, in learning the doctrines of grace than offering the gospel of grace. And they want to make people experts in theology before they're allowed to believe in Jesus. If this goes too far, and some have, I think fairly, it can be said of them, lost their love is for the lost. Theologian Ian Murray rightly said, quote, The final conclusion has to be that when Calvinism ceases to be evangelistic, when it becomes more concerned with theory than with the salvation of men and women, when acceptance of doctrines seems to become more important than acceptance of Christ, it is a system going to seed and it will invariably lose its attractive power, end quote. And I think he's right. We're not beholden to any system. We're beholden to Scripture. Scripture leaves God's sovereignty and man's responsibility just side by side. And so let our teaching and our preaching do the same. 
let us present both as Scripture does. All right, let's see if we can get through a couple more questions here. Question number four. How was salvation possible before the atonement of Christ? How is salvation possible before the atonement of Christ? Does God give more saving grace after Jesus than before? Now, in advance, if you want to follow along, you can turn to Romans 3. We're being quick here, but you can turn to Romans 3. We'll get there in a, in a second. But how is salvation possible before the atonement of Christ? This is another common question. We learn in the New Testament that there is salvation in no other name than that of Jesus, Acts 4.12. And we're saved by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That kind of sounds like Jesus is a pretty big deal to salvation. And it makes you wonder, like, what about all those people who lived before Jesus? Could they be saved? Were they not saved? Were they partially saved? Were they saved a different way? It's a natural good question. We first have to be reminded that, that man's sin problem is universal, meaning whether you live before or after Christ, we all have the same sin problem. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. There's none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10. All are born with inherited guilt from Adam. That's Romans 5. All of us are enslaved to sin. That's Romans 6. So we all have a sin debt before God that we cannot repay. That's a universal sin problem of all people since the fall before and after Christ. There's only one solution to that problem, and it's God's grace. Only a careless reading of the Old Testament would lead you to believe that that Jews were saved by works or saved in a different way. But no, in the same epistle, Paul makes clear that, Romans 3.20, no one is justified by the works of the law. The law gave Israel a picture of God's righteousness, but also revealed how far they fall short of that righteousness because no one can perfectly keep this law. And so the law, in turn, highlighted their need for grace. Saving grace is not a new concept. It's found in the Old Testament. It's the only means of salvation that's clear in the Old Testament. Even Abraham, the founder of the faith, was justified by faith. David was justified by faith. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 4. But here's the kicker, which is the focal point of this question. When God saves us by grace, I mean, that doesn't mean he sweeps our sin debt under the rug. He can't do that. He can't look the other way. He can't ignore our sins. Justice must be served. And that, that's precisely why God sent Jesus to come for us, to die for us, to pay our penalty. The only reason we can be forgiven and receive mercy is because Jesus came and died for us. Think of a man who, who murdered 10 people in cold blood. He stands before the judge, but he feels bad. He has remorse. He says he's sorry. And so the judge says, you know what? Okay, I forgive you. You're free to go. Yes, that would be an example technically of mercy, but we would say that's also an example of gross injustice. And that's not right. The demands of righteousness were not met. A just judge can't just forgive a guilty party because he chooses so. That's not just. God is perfectly just. Exodus 34, 7 says he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is a perfectly just judge. He must uphold perfect righteousness. And so you see, God can't just say, well, I forgive you. You're free to go. You have this infinite sin debt before me, but let's not worry about that. You're free to go. He's actually not able to do that by his own measure of righteousness. He cannot just capriciously forgive people. That would be unjust. The only reason we can be forgiven and receive mercy is because Jesus came and took our penalty in our place. The justice was still served. Either you're going to pay for your sins or Christ will pay for them on the cross. But again, this creates this question. Okay, well, again, what about all those people who came before Jesus? How can they be forgiven? Okay, think about Abraham. Abraham believed God. That's good. But how could God truly accept Abraham 
since Jesus had not come yet to atone for Abraham's sins? This is a good question. Can you guess where we're going to find the answer? It's also in Romans in verses 25 through 26. And there Paul explains this issue in order to uphold the righteousness of God. Paul seeks to, in a sense, justify God. Just meaning, how can God, or how God cannot be accused of unrighteousness in saving Old Testament saints? And the reason being that in accepting Old Testament saints, God did not disregard his justice. He merely delayed his justice toward their sins until Jesus came. Look at verses uh, 25 and 26 if you turn there. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. He says, This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's saying a lot. But one thing is saying is how God accomplished many things through Christ's death on the cross. And one thing God accomplished was a demonstration of his own righteousness. If God had accepted all of those Old Testament believers and Jesus never came, then he would be unjust. What about all of their guilt? You can't just wash that away. And their sins never met justice. But no, verse 25, it says, In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. God suspended his wrath toward Old Testament believers, overlooking their sins. He did not ignore them. He did not sweep them under the rug. But in a manner of speaking, it it says God is holding their sins in reserve. When we sin, it places demands on God's own righteousness and justice. And those demands must be met. But God in his mercy toward these Old Testament believers, he, he just held on to these demands. And then when it says the fullness of time came, as Jesus hung there on the cross, that's when God took that full reserve of the sins previously committed and he, he poured them all out in full on Christ. And in that moment, finally, the full demands of God's justice were met. Jesus made a full propitiation or satisfaction of the demands of God's justice and righteousness. And he did that for for Noah, for Abraham, for David, for all the other men and women of the faith from before his time. And so by Christ's act then, we don't say he restored God's glory. It was never lost, but he did demonstrate it. Like Paul said, he, he proved or demonstrated that God actually was right and righteous to accept all those Old Testament believers because now Jesus has willingly given himself in their place. And the good news for us is that he paid for our sin debt in advance, as it says at the end, that, that God is now both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, which means you yourself today can be forgiven by an act that happened 2,000 years ago, just like Abraham could be accepted by an act that was yet to come for 2,000 years. And this is all good to know, but it does you no good if you don't believe. And so as, as Spurgeon himself would unashamedly preach, you need to believe today. There's a chance some in here who don't believe you've come by God's secret providence to this super random Q&A message of all times to visit a church, that this is still your opportunity to repent and believe in Christ for the remission of your sins. He is your only hope to be forgiven. Justice will be served for your sin and guilt before God and mine too. You either bear that yourself eternally away from God or come to Christ and trust his finished work on the cross. Believe today before your opportunities run out. Well, I have time for one last question. Let's finish with number five. And this, this would be a nice dovetail to question four. Question five. It says, I've heard it said that the only injustice God has ever committed is the punishment of Jesus for our sins. 
Is this true? I've heard it said that the only injustice God has ever committed is the punishment of Jesus for our sins. Is this true? The short answer is no. Like Romans 9, 14 says, what shall we say? There is no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. In the strongest Greek terms possible, Paul denies any sense of injustice with God, whether that's his calling and choosing of people or the atonement. But I understand the question, and it has been asked of Christianity by other religions for a long time. And speaking of the atonement, it doesn't seem just. You have all these people who are guilty sinners. Justice says, do the crime, pay the time. And so they should be punished. Yet God punishes Jesus instead. And he lets all these guilty people go free. In fact, they even get to go to heaven when they've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. And the objection here is that if God is just, how could he pour out that justice on an innocent party and let all the guilty parties go free? But the answer to this objection, of course, found in the concept of substitution. Substitution. That Jesus died in our place as a willing substitute. Sacrifice. Even in human law, a few examples of substitution can be found, like voluntary military service. With Jewish law especially, though, God made substitution a regular concept. He programmed it into their sacrificial system. They would have been familiar with substitution. Now, look, in human law, it's unheard of in reality. The idea of of accepting of justice, accepting a substitute who will pay the full penalty of a crime on behalf of the guilty party. We've never really heard of that for three reasons. For one, to accept a substitute, the substitute first has to be willing. I don't see a lot of people lining up to take the death penalty for murderers on death row. How many willing substitutes are there? Second, the substitute has to be innocent. A fellow murderer on death row cannot be a substitute for another murderer. I think for obvious reasons. And third, the offended party has to accept the substitute. Any sense of justice would demand this. The substitute cannot infringe on the rights of the offended party. But most offended parties, like you're the one that murdered my loved one. I want you to pay. I don't want this innocent substitute to pay. Like you need to pay for your crimes. Who today would accept a substitute? And so for these reasons, it seems nearly impossible that that human substitution would work in our legal system, which is why it's unheard of. But it is different altogether with God. God is perfectly just, yes, but he will determine how his justice will be served. And if he were to be nothing but fair, all guilty parties will be convicted and sentenced to hell forever. That's perfectly fair. You don't want that. You don't want God to be only fair. You you want mercy. I want mercy. Thankfully, this God is merciful. That's partly because the guilty party is his beloved creation. This explains why God sent his son into the world to redeem us. And keep in mind, for Jesus the Savior. He came as a willing substitute. He was not forced. John 10, he says, no one took his life, but this good shepherd was going to lay down his life for the sheep. It says, of his own accord. He's going to lay it down freely. God found in his son a willing substitute. And second, Jesus was an innocent substitute in the truest sense of the word, meaning the full sense of God's justice. He was perfectly sinless. John knew this when he cried out and and he saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that perfect, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God, that sacrifice who can actually take our place and pay our penalty. And third, thankfully, this God accepts substitutes. You realize God is our judge, but he's also the offended party at the same time. All of our sin is ultimately against him. But unlike humans, God is delighted to accept this willing, perfect substitute in his son. He will accept the death of Jesus in our place. Hence, Isaiah 53.10 says, The Lord was pleased to crush him 
and put him to grief if he would offer himself as a guilt offering. And that is what Jesus did for us. In the end, it's, it's sad and it's ironic that people would cry foul on God for accepting Jesus in our place. They get hung up on the concern that, that God would forgive immoral people. But in saying that, not only do they condemn themselves, but they're missing the good news. That God would forgive immoral people, which we all are. You know, there are some who disparage the justice of God. They're really just, they're failing to understand that the self-giving love of God. It's known really to no other religions. It just struck me as we sung it this morning. But Christianity alone knows of this unsurpassed nature of the love of God. Seen most in giving his son. Didn't we sing? My page flipped. In the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. This comes from the love of God, which Islam, which Buddhism, which other religions, worldviews just don't understand. They can't grasp the love of God that that sits right next to the justice of God. But both found their culmination and intersection in the cross, where the love of God and the, and the justice of God were fully reconciled and met. You should marvel at this. You should glorify God for his sense of justice. It's part of his perfection, but you should be thanking God daily and personally that you have received his mercy. This is not fair. But it is grace, and you should thank God for that. His subjection is just one more reason why the word of, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They don't understand. But to us who are being saved, we see here the power of God. We see the love of God. So let's give thanks for the love of God. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do pause and give you thanks for your love. Even in these Q&A messages, we're still studying your truth, your scriptures, and we still find reasons to praise, to thank you. This is not meant to simply fill our, our heads, but also move to our hearts where we are. We behold our God for who he is, for what he has done. And we have indeed beheld a God who, who saves, who is merciful. You are just. We, we sense that. We know that. You are perfectly righteous. None of us deserve your forgiveness or acceptance. I pray everyone here is convicted by their own sin and guilt, of which we are hopeless, but in Christ there is hope. For this God is so loving that he would send his only begotten son into the world to die on that cross. And there he served out this perfect, willing, sinless, accepted substitute, taking the full penalty, the full measure of wrath that was due, and drinking down that cup to the dregs. We thank you, Christ, for being our Savior and for, for doing all that was needed to redeem us, to buy us, to reconcile us to the Father. May these truths dwell in our heart, Lord. Help them to fill our minds that we would be renewed by these scriptures each and every day, that we might walk by your Spirit. This is how we hear from you and live according to your will. We thank you for all these truths. May we leave here in the love of God, cherishing the love of God, and now living out the love of God before others as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.